Welcome to Telling is Political, a storytelling podcast featuring the Chicanx Latinx communities of Stockton, California. My name is Angeli, host and co-producer. I am not from Stockton, and I'm pretty new to Northern California, so here in Telling is Political, I'm simply an ear, a listener just like you for the stories that matter to Stockton. Today, I'm here with Nancy, co-founder and co-director of Nopal, the sponsoring organization for Telling is Political. Nancy Wontesin Soon was born in Mexico, but grew up in Stockton, California. She's currently a professor of in ethnic studies at CSU Sacramento. Her current research focuses on the impact of the Stockton Scholars Program on Stockton youth, examining aspiration, goals, and plans among recent high school graduates. Nancy, we're here today again. How are you? I'm doing good. Are you a little nervous today? I'm very nervous, (laughs) very nervous, but very excited to be here. So thank you for hosting. Thank you for driving this project. How was your drive over? By the way, Nancy pulled up with the snacks today. She made quite an entrance. So thank you, Nancy. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, How was your way here? You're good? I'm good. I'm always on the rush, you know, with kids. Of course. But I I think (laughs) I think I'm pulling through today. Wearing all the hats. So, Nancy, you know, when we were thinking about what episodes would we would record for Telling Us Political, one thing that came up for all of us, I think, was education. Right. Especially for someone like me who has been formerly undocumented and had to navigate the education system as an undocumented person. And then for you as a first generation college student, this is the theme that is very common among youth in Stockton, you know, especially with the big Latinx population here in Stockton and so many children of immigrants, you know, California is such a huge college slash university state and the statistics are really fascinating. And, you know, when I was preparing for this episode, I looked up a few things. Some of these statistics really took me by surprise as coming from someone, you know, that grew up in New York. For example, according to Forbes, as of 2022, California ranks number one as the state with the most population of first generation students attending college and high school. And specifically in Stockton, the majority of college students are women and the most students graduating from university are Hispanic slash Latino with a 36.5 percent higher than any other ethnicity. At the high school level, here in Stockton, Latinx students make up 68.2% of the school district. So, you know, as someone who grew up in Stockton, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with going to school in Stockton? What resources did you have access to? And let's, let's keep it for now in high school. For me, when I was in New York, I didn't even know what the SATs were. I found out about that probably my junior year of high school, right? So I didn't even have a... A previous preparation when it came to preparing for college. How was your experience? High school was a very interesting place when I think about like my academic journey. I had one class that was labeled the international bachelorette class, the IB class, and it was an English class. And it was the most difficult, yet the most eye-opening class. And I say the most difficult because as a English language learner, you know, coming in as an immigrant, being undocumented for a while, there was a lot of stigma about speaking Spanish in school. And so when I got to high school and I was at the highest level of English, I was very confused. Hmm. <laughs> I was very confused why I was there. And I was also very scared because I understood kind of the stake, right, of like 
what it meant to be there. Like if I didn't pass the class, I was falling back to the stereotype of English language learner, not knowing what, what I was doing, not being a good writer, et cetera. So I had a lot of anxiety when I got to that class. But at the same time, there were a few teachers in the IB program, specifically teaching English, that constantly reminded me that I belong there, that I'm a good writer, that I need to think about college. And so in that sense, I was kind of having the mindset for it. Unfortunately, because I only had one IB class and all of my other classes were general ed, not uh, college prep courses. Mm. When my senior year came and, you know, all the students in that IB class were applying for college, I found out the hard way that I was not qualified to submit my application to UC Davis, which is where I originally wanted to go because I did not take like the amount of classes that I needed oh, wow. within college prep. So I was very heartbroken. I started doing really bad that fall. I lost like 15 units of what I was. Wow. So I was failing. I wasn't going to graduate towards the end. But, you know, again, I think there were some folks that really came together, like the migrant education program, specifically here in Stockton. And they were like, we're not going to let you fail. There are things that you can do to, to get through and like pass your classes and graduate. So the migrant education program took a big step in helping me when everyone else had already given up on me. Yeah. And then the other person, specifically Mr. Viramontes, he was my Spanish teacher in, in mm. the back in when I was a freshman or sophomore. I can't remember. But he took it upon himself as the advisor for Mecha and then also in, in relationship with the migrant ed program to take us to college opportunity conferences, sometimes just trips that were, for me, they looked really fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, they were trying to get us to explore campus, right, and ask questions. To dream beyond what you already knew, essentially. Exactly. And so through both of them, both the Migrant Education Program and Mr. Viramontes, I remember like the last thing, right? Because I was already like, okay, I'm going to graduate from high school. I can't get into college. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go into the Navy, right? I'm just going to sign up because I wanted to leave Stockton. The narrative was so bad if you stayed here, right? The narrative was like, Si te quedas, if you stay, is because you're a failure, right? I know that now is wrong, right? It's very mm -hmm. deficit. And I, I just really wanted to leave. But I had a couple of friends who were like, you know, specifically one, Maribel Rosendo. Shout out to her. We were on the same grade. <laughs> and she was like, you know, preparing to go to Sac State. She was doing all her stuff. And she's like, guess what? They have special admissions. So like you just have to turn in your application with the educational opportunity program. And if you're selected, you get special admission. Like it doesn't matter if you didn't do any of your A through G courses. They're going to give you a one year probation. Oh, wow. So like I submitted and I was like, OK, this is my plan <laughs> B. But my plan A is the Navy. So I was like locked in. But June 2003, they were like, we want you to come to our program. We're going to give you this probation year where you get to catch up. 
So I had to take like remedial courses that mm-hmm. whole first year of college. Basically, I ended up staying, right? I said no to the Navy and I went to the Summer Bridge program at Sac State. And that's how I got into college. And and at what, at what age did you migrate and everything? So there were two points of entry that mm. I like to think about. Mm. I was a baby, so I was nine months old. We had to use someone else's papers okay. to get me through. And then the second time I crossed the border with my cousin, I was four years old. We were unaccompanied youth, what we now know, right? The yes. research mm-hmm. behind that. And my parents were waiting on the other side, the side of Texas, gotcha. waiting for us. And then since then, up until I was 15, that's when I was able to get my green card. And, you know, from that, like, later, way later, like 20 years later, become a res, you know, a citizen, I mean, naturalized citizen. So what I'm hearing, Nancy, is that you could have essentially been left behind, right? And that by default, the education system wasn't something that was catered to someone like you who just did not know, right? Perhaps we see students who like whose parents went to college who already are like kind of checking in on their transcript, making sure they have everything they need, that they're on track. Right. But for a lot of Latinos, especially first generation students, we see that like you're just kind of flowing. Right. You're going through education, you're doing your homework and you're doing what you're supposed to do. But if someone doesn't sit you down and say this is what you need, it's hard. Right. Because you don't know what you don't know. The migrant. What was it? The Migrant Education Center program education program Mm -hmm. kind of like took you in right like wrapped you in their arms and were like okay not all hope is lost this is how we can get you back on track Mm -hmm. now that you are an educator yourself which is what's mira como es la vida right um now you're an educator yourself a professor who gets to teach ethnic studies who's which is like very it's all very correlated with your own story right into education how do you see some of this, that, that same trajectory in the students that you teach now? Or how has it changed? Perhaps there are more resources now um, for students that were that are now or were at some point in your, in your position as well. Have you seen any similarities? What are the differences now as well? Unfortunately, the struggle continues. Mm. There's a lot of um, students who still speak about this inconsistency to get students the right information, which means the right classes, engagement with their families. Because I I also want to say, like, in the process of me going to school here, my parents were very supportive, right? They were very much about, we want you to do more than what we've done so far. And both of my parents, one of them worked for a long time in the warehouses and agricultural work. And then my other parent did a combination of, like, self-work. So my mom, she owns a small business and she would go to work to the warehouses as well. So tag team, right? So they never doubted me. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to say my family is very supportive till this day. They don't understand quite how Mm -hmm. the system works, (laughs) but they're there, they're focused, they're proud of me. And I think that that's still very much the storyline that I hear from students when mm. I talk to them in my classroom, right? Their family, no matter who ends up being part of that unit, they're very supportive, right? They're very, very supportive in terms of their vision and their goals in terms of education. 
But structurally, you know, mm -hmm. there's still challenges in terms of the types of schools that we have available for students who are uh, historically marginalized at the intersection of different identities, right? So it's a, it's a struggle. I think now we do have more of an investment from the education side, right? Like there's more programs that have been designed to help them. So for example, if, we, if I think of just Sac State alone, I can think of like the CARES office that focuses on helping students who are having difficulty with, you know, securing a home, securing food, and, and then also the academic side of things, right? Advising, like there's tons of programs now that are heightened for specific groups like queer students on mm. campus, for example. Here in Stockton, the change, it, it goes back and forth, almost like a wave. Mm. There's been moments, like, for example, when I was doing policy work and education in 2015 and 16, there was a growth of, like, community-centered nonprofits that were coming into the educational spaces to, like, provide some of those resources to work with the county, to work with the schools, to work with the parents, right, um, to get some of that animo, that energy to, to get our students through the pipeline. And then we see regression depending on the switch of, of leadership, right? Where they get rid of services, they get rid of programs and they don't hire more counselors. They don't hire teachers, right? So it's like a, a regression back and forth here in Stockton. I guess one of the important things that I wanna say though, is that the community outside of these structures maintain their strength some way, somehow, right? They keep being persistent with their educational goals. And, I mean, and, we, and we see that in the statistics, right? Like the percentage of, of Latino students actually making it, right, to, to college and to college programs. It's huge, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost disproportionate to what we see in many other states. Mm -hmm. So that means that somewhere along the way, there is, you know, educators and, and counselors are doing the thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, are showing up for these students and these students are finding their way to, to education. How do you see students navigate college once they are there, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say they have already gone through, you know, high school system, they've somehow made it through and they've ended up now in a classroom or in your classroom. How do you see students navigate those spaces when in company with students who perhaps are not first generation and how can educators show up for them? You know, you are one of the founders of Nopal, an organization that's like so invested in youth and creativity and youth education. How do you invest in your students within the classroom and how do you advise for other professors and educators to invest in their own, especially providing that like bit of extra help, extra counseling, extra love for students that are there as the first person in their family? I want to go back to your first question of like, how do students navigate? From what I'm seeing, being part of different student spaces, it becomes very important because they're able to share their, their stories with other students and then vice versa, right? They end up understanding each other and almost supporting each other, right? In many different ways, even when they don't have all the tools when they don't have all the information. The other way that I see them navigating is making a connection to mentors. Mm -hmm. um, I know that that's one of the advice that I give my students, right? As soon as you 
see someone either in a position that you want to see yourself in the future or even someone that just vibes with you, right? Where it just makes you feel really good. Make a connection, you know, because it's important to be part of those networking circles, not just for advancement purposes, but I think for that that feel good, right? Mm -hmm. That capability of knowing that you can do anything that you want to do. Yes. You know, Nancy, I think you just reminded me of an experience that I had when I was in college. I was undocumented through all my four years of college. I had this mentor. Well, actually, uh, they brought a speaker to the school. One of my mentors brought a speaker to the school who was a founder of like a scheme programs for um, students. He said that there was between, you know, students at Ivy Leagues and students in community colleges or state schools. There was only one difference. And it was that students in Ivy Leagues saw each other and their peers as people that could someday be in their network and that they deemed valuable to keep in contact with because somewhere down the line they would cross paths versus students at states and community schools where the hardships are so large that it's hard to connect with others because you're kind of on the hustle every day. So that's one advice that I never, ever forgot, which is like, look at your peers and at your community like they are your network. That somewhere down the line, you will need each other and you will need to rely on each other. Whether that is, you know, someone who spoke positively about an issue that you are passionate about in class or someone who wants to go to law school and you you essentially believe in them and you encourage them because one day you have a friend that's a lawyer um, who can perhaps talk to your children one day, you know, about what it was like in law school. There's this big sense of, you know, especially among Latinos of like finding community within family. But I think if there's one thing that I think was helpful for me was seeing also the classroom as a community of its own as well. And that is essentially what you're saying, right? Mentors, you know, people in 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 authority positions that can kind of guide you through some of these, these you know, roadblocks, right? Mm-hmm. You essentially had to navigate through your own hoops, right? Through education. What made you end up in academia? Why academia? Why did you decide to become an educator? I still don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that there's a lot of possibility in the classroom. I mean, if I'm thinking about the classroom in teaching ethnic studies, for Mm. example, I get to teach about history in a critical social justice way. And I get to also bring in myself, my full authentic self. I don't know of any other place that where I could do that right now. So I I love it. I love the space of the classroom. I'm dipping into the research part. That has been rough because of what I told you around my insecurities in terms of writing, speaking, being an English language learner. So that itself, it's part of the job, the teaching job, and it's where I struggle the most. But when I look at, you know, my mentors, when I think about my students, when I think about my parents, that's the place that I've been able to grow the most. So Mm. that's where I want to stay. And I want to bridge that with community work because that's the other place where I have felt I've had the power to change structures and also change hearts. The combination of community work with teaching has been kind of the strength. Thank you for that, Nancy. I think education work and and, and being an educator is one of the most honorable jobs. You have the power essentially to shape the way that someone sees themselves and the way that they see people in their communities. I think it's also very humbling that, you know, students probably come into the classroom and look at you as like this, like, 
figure of authority, right, of like someone who made it, right, who is in academia. And to hear you say that you too also struggle with your own insecurities around writing and around creating and researching and the work, I, I think is a testament to the fact that like one, you know, getting a green card <laughs> doesn't fix all your problems, but also that like, you know, learning English is something, especially as immigrants, is something that te dura toda la vida. Like, mm -hmm. I wonder if we're ever, and I say that because I also relate, right? I I wonder if we ever, if there ever comes a point where we re, when we actually think like, I have, I know enough, right? Mm -hmm. I know enough English to last <laughs> me a lifetime. Because even for me, you know, when I mispronounce a word, when, you know, there's a little uh, accent that comes out or, you know, I get that feeling, that yeah. cringe inside. And, I, and that definitely comes from childhood and navigating, you know, this country as a child of immigrants and as an immigrant yourself. So I hope that students that are listening and, and youth that are listening can relate to this and also know that even with, with those insecurities, you can still achieve your goals, you know, and that speaks to the work that you're doing now with Nopal, right? Working on, on opening up a coffee shop for youth, working on the need, fulfilling that need that it, it's the vacancy in the community for something like this, for a space like this, right? So Nancy, when we talk about then Stockton, this city in which you grew up that became home to your family, this is something that, you know, we ask all of our guests. In what ways has Stockton shaped you? I always tell my students, I rep hard. I say <laughs> 209 por vida. And then they ask me like, well, why do you rep so hard? And I think it's because, you know, there it's a place where I, I've really learned to like take care of myself, but also take care of community. Like there's still this, you know, in spite of all the structural issues that we have to face with the criminal justice system here in stock, you know, in our county, the education system, community still pulls through. You know, they carry they carried me through and they carried my family who were essentially new right to this place. And it, it was really beautiful. Right. And I think that that's the message that I hold very dearly and that I share with others when I rep hard in the classroom and my research with Nopal and recruiting people to come here to Stockton to see the beauty right? In spite of all the negative numbers sometimes and the bad rep that we get in social media or on the newscasting. This is my home, you know, this is my second home. Mexico, I rep hard too from Michoacan, you know? Hey. Uh, <laughs> I was just there not too long ago and it was really beautiful to reconnect with family after 20 years, you know? And, and the same applies there, community pulling through, you know, despite all of the issues that might cloud the space or may have us sometimes lost or insecure, right? So I think that Stockton is a beautiful place. There's a lot of possibility and youth is at the center of it. Just the other day, I was talking to some young people and she's like, well, what, why do you always tell us that youth is the future, you know? And I'm like, because look at me, right? People invested in me when I was young, and here I am opening up a coffee shop with my best friend, having Nopal, being able to teach, right? It's because there was a group of folks who invested in me, and now it's time to circle that back, right? So what are you? You all are going to do amazing things when we circle back to you in a couple of years, you know? That's kind of the spirit that I go with that makes a connection to, to where I'm from and where I've been. 
For sure. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you for being with us today. Shout out to Stockton. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, a Nigerian writer, has a very beautiful speech where she talked about the danger of the single story. For those who are listening, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing speech slash keynote where she talks about how dangerous it is to have one-sided story of any place, right? In her case, it was Nigeria, but it reminded me of what you said about Stockton, right? Um, You can hear all these negative things about a city, never want to visit, be scared of it. But within that city, there's a hub of communities taking care of each other and surviving and and pulling the city through. That's the beauty of coming from a place that has been so marginalized with a history that has led to people being marginalized. So there's beauty in, in this community. There's beauty in these stories. And thank you, Nancy, for the work that you're doing. We hope that you continue to listen. This is Telling Us Political, featuring stories from Stockton, California. Thanks for writing with us. See you next time.